0: Hey there, and welcome to Pause Pop, Positively Pop Culture, where we talk about things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. I'm Carrie Gessner. And I'm K.W. Taylor. This week, we're talking about the new album Gaslighter by The Chicks. But first, special guest Rachel Porter joined us to talk about the new Netflix adaptation of The Babysitter's
1: Club. Yes, this conversation was so fun. And you started watching the show after we had this talk, didn't you? I did. I'm like halfway through it now. And it's
0: just really sweet and really fun. So it was was great to talk to Rachel about it. And she convinced me to watch it. Maybe she'll convince you listeners to watch it too. Great.
1: Well, let's get to it. So we are here again with our frequent guest, Rachel Porter. And she came to us with a segment idea because she is really, really, really into the new babysitters club. So Rachel, tell us all about this. We are not as well-versed in the Babysitter's Club universe as you are.
2: (laughs) Yes. So hi, it's good to be back. And thank you for letting me force my way onto your podcast to talk about the Babysitter's Club. I appreciate that (laughs) because I just want to talk about it all the time because it's the perfect show, as I have said. I will start with some history. So this is based on a series of I don't know if they would technically be young adult or younger than young adult novels that were popular in the late 80s and early 90s, but still were being published until 2000. Oh. So the first 36 of them were explicitly written by Anne M. Martin, who since has come out as a lesbian and has continued to kind of be engaged in authorial work.
1: Wait. Carrie, why don't you just pipe in and say and say what's happening so that our listeners won't be disturbed. Okay, yeah. So my neighbors are building a fence,
0: and every once in a while, there are some machine noises. We'll try to keep it as low as possible, but if you hear stuff in the background, that's what's going on. <laughs> please, <laughs> please continue, Rachel.
2: Sure, yeah. So they were first, they were written by Anne M. Martin, and she wrote probably between 60 and 80 of them, but specifically, she wrote the first 36. And there are over 200 Series Club novels. The rest of them were written kind of by ghostwriters, but all under the N. M. Martin name. And the book series follows a group of, initially, a group of middle schoolers with kind of a core five of those being Christy Thomas, Claudia Kishi, Marianne Spear, Stacey McGill, and Dawn Shafer. And then later, more babysitters are added. They get junior officers who are a little bit younger than them, primarily Mallory Pike and Jesse Ramsey. Then there's some that I'm a little bit less familiar with from childhood, but this was easily my favorite book series when I was growing up. I was absolutely obsessed. I don't know if we could call it fandom because I wasn't like engaged in message boards or anything because it was a little bit before the internet was at my house at least. (laughs) But it was the first thing that like just captured me fully. I wanted to start my own babysitter's club. At one point, my reality testing skills got a bit weak and I tried to call the babysitter's club because <laughs> it had the flyer printed out in the book. Uh-huh. And so I looked up what would have been a reasonable like, you know how in books and everything, it's always that 555 number. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I had enough reality testing remaining to me to know that that wasn't real. So I tried to figure out what that number would be in Stony Brook, Connecticut, and tried to call that on my parents' phone. <laughs> using what at that time was long distance. Oh no! Um, so that cost some money, and I got nowhere with it, obviously. But I'm, all of this to say, when the new series was announced, I was very excited. There was another series in, I think, the later 90s, and there was a little movie that was pretty good. But neither of those are nearly as good, in my opinion, or as enjoyable as what just came out on Netflix, which is The Babysitter's Club, the TV series. And the first 10 episodes of it are out, and of those, the first eight Follow specifically the first eight books. So you start off with Christy's Big Idea, which is the formation of the club. And Christy is club president. She is very bossy, but owns it and just kind of says, I'm bossy, deal with it, get over it. This is who I am. And I'm smart (laughs) and I know it. It's really amazing. And then the other three immediate members are Claudia Kishi, who's the vice president of the club, Marianne Spear, who has been. Christy's best friend since basically birth they live in the house next door to each other and she's a secretary and then Stacy McGill, who is the treasurer of the club and she is new to Stony Brook and friends with Claudia. And then by episode four they introduce Don Schaefer, who becomes an alternate officer of the club which as Christy explains it means she does a little bit of everything and whatever is asked. So those are the primary child cast members there's also several recurring adults the two that are listed under the main cast are alicia silverstone as elizabeth brewer who's Christie's mom and mark fierstein who as watson brewer who is who becomes Christie's stepdad through the course of the series this season and then you have claudia's family who The main family members featured with Claudia are her grandmother, Mimi, who's played by Takayo Fisher, and her older sister, Janine, who's played by Aya Furukawa, And then Marianne's dad is played by Mark Evan Jackson, and he is incredible in all things, including this. And those are kind of the main adults. There are certainly some other ones here and there. And so that kind of rounds out the cast. And... The show is just an absolute delight.
1: So they are all babysitters. They do babysitting. Is that correct?
2: Yes, they do do babysitting. Okay. So the idea comes to Christy while she's watching her mom trying to find a babysitter for her younger brother, David Michael. And mom is having the hardest time finding a babysitter. And any she can find are extremely expensive. And so Christy is watching this and she has the idea to form a babysitter's club where somebody can call one number. And there will be four or five. I mean, by the midway through the season, there are five of them, including Dawn, young ladies who are ready to be able to babysit. And so they call the parents will call in and say, you know, this is so and so and I need somebody to sit for my whoever, for um, X to Y, and then Marianne will look at their little schedule, which has been updated for 2020 as being on a little like iPad (laughs) instead (laughs) of in paper. And she looks at the schedule and she says, oh, Claudia is available at that time. And they say, "Okay, Claudia will be with you at that time. And they send Claudia out. So the idea is to minimize the trouble for parents looking for babysitters for their kids. Cool. Yeah. And so there's like great little subplots all throughout. There's one where there's a babysitter's agency that's trying to hone in on their territory (gasps) with some older girls who are able to like stay out later. Uh. And so there's a little rivalry. And then there's lots of little subplots with the relationships between all the babysitters. And there's subplots with the adults. So like Christy's mom gets married through the course of it. And a lot of What that shows is like Christy trying to deal with the idea of her mom getting remarried because her dad abandoned her family when she was younger. Uh And she just has lots of feelings and gets kind of attached to this like feminist idea of her mom being a single mom and watching out for all the kids. And Watson is very wealthy, which also Christy struggles with a lot. This idea of we're suddenly people who have money and have things Hmm. when they're used to Kind of struggling for everything. And then, like, there's a little subplot with Marianne and her dad. So, Marianne's mom died when she was a baby, and her dad has been raising her since then as a single dad. And he is super overprotective and keeps her kind of young, younger than her age. And so, there's a plot, like, a good little subplot arc about her growing up a little bit more and her being able to. Kind of prove to Dad that she is more mature than he's giving her credit for and start to work that out. So he also allows her to like change her look and change her room and start to grow into herself. And what's really cool is how the series just really seamlessly updated the original books to fit today. Cool. And the things we kind of know more about now and that are more in kind of the common cultural conversations. So a great example of that is in the fourth episode, which is Marianne Saves the Day, which is the book was the same. Also, Marianne Saves the Day. And the general plot of that is that Marianne is explicitly asked for, which is against the ethos of the club, according to Christy. You can't select your babysitter. It's whoever's <laughs> available. But the rest of the club give, members get upset with her because she's asked to go babysit this little girl, Bailey. And the parent won't accept anyone else. So the general outline of that is that Bailey, in the second time they're babysitting, spikes a really high temperature of 104. And Marianne kind of has to deal with that on her own. She can't find an adult that's available. And so she ends up calling 911 and getting Bailey to the hospital and all of these things. And all of that is the same as the book. But what's updated is that in this iteration, Bailey is a transgender girl. And... Marianne, in addition to kind of wrapping her head around that herself, also stands up to the nurse and the doctor who keep misgendering Bailey. Mm -hmm. She pulls them out of the hospital room and she's like, if you would look out of your chart and look at this child, you'll see Bailey is a girl Mm -hmm. and you need to stop treating her how you're treating her. And also go get me a not blue hospital gown because Bailey does not want to wear a blue hospital gown. (laughs) And so they just did a really nice job of incorporating things that are more present in our culture now than they necessarily were in the, in like 1986. Mm -hmm. And so that's just been really fun. And it's just fun. It feels very pure and innocent in so many ways because these are kids and they're acting like kids and the parents act like parents and have flaws. My, one of my friends, who also watched this got so excited because Christie's mom actually yells at her kids sometimes. <laughs> and she was like, "Oh my god, this mom yells too!" <laughs> and so it's just shown as like really human and really lovely. And of course, it's you know they're little thirty minute episodes, so things get resolved by the end of each episode, and it just feels really good, especially right now when there's so much. That feels so shaky in the world. Yeah, right. To have this nice little pure thing. I've watched it all the way through once, and I'm halfway through for the second time. <laughs> and it's been out for like a week. <laughs> it's just it's it feels comforting and good.
0: Mm-hmm. So I have a question.
2: You said the first eight episodes are based on the books. Yes, in the same order. Okay. Have you read the books recently? No, not since I was young, although okay. this really made me want to go next time I'm at my parents. I think I, they still have my whole Babysitter's Club <laughs> collection, and it made me want to bring them all back. <laughs> and episodes 9 and 10 are also based on one of the books, I think, but it's not one of the like regular series books. So throughout the whole series, they have these super special that they were called, which were longer novels and regular super specials and super special mysteries. And so those longer novels usually took place outside of Stony Brook, which is where the series takes place in Stony Brook, Connecticut. And they usually take place outside of that. They involve the whole club being like away on a trip of some sort. And that's what the final two of this season are is a two parter. Called Hello Camp Moosehead, where the whole club goes to summer camp. Mm. And, you know, there's a little mystery that happens, plus, like, chaos ensues a little bit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Sounds good.
2: Christy, being as she is, her introduction to the world now is basically Hello, I'm Christy Thomas, president and founder of the Babysitter's Club. she goes to camp and she's like, hello, yes, we're the Stony Brook crew. We are the Babysitter's Club. You need to be taking us seriously. And we should also be counselors here now, even though, yes, we're only 13, but we need to actually be in charge. Because we know more than you do. Uh, And it's just, it's a delightful bit of Christy.
1: (laughs) So you mentioned that the original novels were kind of like early YA, I would call that maybe middle grade or something. Mm -hmm. Do they progress? Like, do the girls stay... In, like, middle school age, or?
2: I think they're 13 the whole way through. The
1: whole way through.
2: Yeah, I think it's one of those that just kind of is, like, stagnant in time. Okay. Like, kind of like Saved by the Bell. They never, until they had the graduation episode and end of the series, you know, they stayed for years and years and years (laughs) in (laughs) high school. So this is very like that. They just kind of stay this age. I assume the show will do differently. You know, actors grow up. Mm Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I will burn down the world if there is not a season two. <laughs> Uh-oh.
1: Just putting that out there.
2: <laughs> but, yeah, it's great. Like, everything just updated so well. It's just really exciting to see something that I loved so much growing up be just transitioned so easily into something I can love as a 40-year-old.
0: <laughs> that's yeah, great. that's really cool. Mm-hmm. So do you have a favorite episode? Hmm.
2: That would be... Probably a tie between Marianne Saves the Day, which is the episode I talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And then I think Christie's Big Day was really, really well done. That's the episode where Christie's mom gets married. Okay. And there's a lot in there about just kind of Christy's feelings about it and about the fact that the wedding is huge and expensive and lavish and... Christy gets a dress that's more expensive than what she was originally planning. And her mom gets really mad at her for getting that dress, even though her brother got to get like a, a very nice new car. Oh. Um,
0: that doesn't seem fair. <laughs>
2: that's, yeah, basically. And so it just really shows the relationship between Christy and her mom really, really well. And she also gets her first period during this, which is very sweet. And all of her friends kind of gather around her and kind of talk her through it. Because her mom is busy getting married and Christy can't seem to get a moment alone with her. Mm -hmm. And so it's just handled with a lot of love and a lot of care. And so those are probably my two favorite with Claudia and Mean Janine, which is episode six, probably the third favorite.
0: (laughs) Okay. Those sound really, really heartfelt and and nice.
2: (laughs) Yes. They are. They are very heartfelt and nice and lovely and just sweet. And so when you need something that lets you have some nice emotions, (laughs) and lets you feel comforted. And it's like 25 to 30 minutes long an episode. It just feels good.
1: Yeah, that does sound very comforting, especially in today's world. And it sounds like it can kind of transcend its intended demographic for viewers, because I assume this is mostly going to appeal to girls who are at that age. But
2: I think girls who are that age and also people who read the books will be the, like, most – or who loved the books, at least, will be the most natural demographic. But, like, I know we were on Facebook chatting, and I was not the only one recommending this show to you. No, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So I don't know what those demographics are, but – and I don't know how people feel about it if they're, like, of my age bracket that did not read the books. Yeah. But I know, like – I know people who read the books overall really loved it. And I know it's been getting really good reviews. Mm -hmm. It has
1: been. Yeah. And I was, I think the reason I didn't start this was because I, for whatever reason, even though I would be in that demographic, I did not read them when they were out. And I don't know why. I think I was reading other things. It wasn't that I didn't read middle grade and young adult books because I did, but I, I don't know. They just didn't really, same with Sweet Valley High. I didn't read Sweet Valley High either. (sighs)
2: Oh my god, that's <laughs> the best! I loved those Wakefield twins. Um, I would bet you read more like R.L. Stein and Goosebumps and things like that, and maybe like Nancy Drew. I read Nancy Boxstar Drew, twins, and
1: I read Goosebumps. Mm-hmm. So we were <laughs> spookier, I guess. <laughs> okay.
2: I was like, I feel like if you then like this many of the same things you now like and that you now write, you probably were on the spookier side of things. (laughs) I for sure
1: was. Although I also read some fantasy and and I read some Stephen King before I was probably old enough to be doing that. But (laughs) (laughs) oh, V.C. Andrews, which is also another thing that teenagers read a lot, but shouldn't. So, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I was really into Encyclopedia Brown
0: and the Clue mystery
2: books Uh (laughs) uh-huh i mean i love babysitter's club and sweet valley high and i loved nancy drew very much and those were probably my like top three things i always read but i certainly had other things too yeah
1: i had a lot of the classic nancy drews that were in hardback in the 80s and then like that were actually written in the 40s and stuff and then i had like the 80s ones and some of those crossed over with the hardy boys so i liked those a lot nice but this sounds really cute and I I think it just was not for whatever reason on my radar but I'll check it out.
2: Yeah, same. It is really cute and it just just feels good. <laughs> and one of the reviews I'm just kind of glancing at writes the, the series is unabashedly feminist which is completely accurate. Like it is definitely a feminist series and like there's an episode where Claudia Claudia is not great at academics. She's an amazing artist, but when it comes to like math and different things like that, she really struggles and she's trying to do well on a test. And so she says she wears a special smart outfit and calls it Ruth Bader Ginsburg chic.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's cute.
2: It's great. And so there's a lot of little nods to things like that. It's just really good.
1: I need a smart outfit. That sounds very, very good. (laughs)
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. it's a cute little outfit too because Claudia and Stacy are the fashionable, sophisticated ones uh. but Claudia's fashion is really quirky and artsy and like, I guess it would be kind of hipstery <laughs> whereas Stacy is, she relocates from Manhattan and she is sophisticated New York City girl and so it's fun to just see how well drawn all the characters are and how well they just fit who they are with their fashion, with their bedrooms are all shown and the bedrooms are really set like they like they feel like the girls. Oh, that's cool. And so it's just it's cool to see how unique each one of them is. Cute. And Dawn is like a little social justice warrior. <laughs> She's from California and she leads an uprising at one point and is just very very strong in nature oh. and very fun. The other thing I should mention that the tv series did was do some increase in the diversity of particularly races and backgrounds represented so in the original book series claudia was always japanese and still is and jesse ramsey who joins the cast towards the end of this season and that uh, the two-parter she is african-american and always has been but in the tv series marianne is a mixed-race child her mom was black and her dad is white, and Dawn is Latina. Whereas in the original book series, she was like stereotypical nineteen eighties blonde California girl. Oh wow! And so they just did a lot of improvements around what's represented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool.
1: Well, I'm I'm probably gonna check it out. It sounds really really heartwarming and good and necessary. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I will too. I've been looking for something shorter. And as everyone knows, I've, I've been looking for things that make me feel good. So this sounds like exactly what I need right now.
2: I hope you do both check it out and that everybody else checks it out. Because again, if there's not a season two, everybody's got to watch out. (laughs) (laughs) She's burning down the world. Yeah. Just I mean, that's what Christy Thomas would do. So I have to.
1: (laughs) Thank you for sharing your enthusiasm about this show with our listeners.
2: Of course. Thank you for having me.
0: That was great. Thank you to Rachel for coming on again. We'll have her back in a few weeks to discuss some more fun stuff. So watch out for that.
1: Yeah. But now we're going to move on to talking about Gaslighter by the Chicks. And this was a suggestion you had. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, absolutely. So the Chicks, formerly known
0: as the Dixie Chicks, Just came out with an album a week or so ago called Gaslighter, and it's their first album in fourteen years, I think. So as a fan of this band, it was very fun to find out that they were finally gonna come out with another album because they like broke up for a while or just took some time off. And Emily Robison and Marty McGuire, two other members of the band, they were the courtyard hounds. They were a duo for for a little while so their stuff is very cool too do you just want to jump in what did you listen to the whole thing what did you like about it did
1: and and I have not really listened to a lot of their stuff from before and I feel like I want to sort of treat them like they're almost a new band to me and kind of okay. move forward in my listening of them as the chicks I'd heard like some of that like actually goodbye Earl is kind of a classic and <laughs> <laughs> I'd even shown the video of that in a class as an example of feminist music video. (laughs) It's kind of a classic. So I was really kind of, I didn't want to go back and listen to some other stuff of theirs. I really just listened to this kind of cold.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So yeah, but if you want to give a little bit more background about the band, if you feel like that's necessary, do you think that this album is indicative of their earlier work? Or do you think it feels like a little bit of a reboot for them?
0: Gosh, I'm not really that good of a musical analysis I think probably the important thing to note is that it has been 14 years since they re- last released an album. There are a lot of personal issues in this album. I don't know a lot about their personal lives, but I do know that Natalie Maines, the main singer, got divorced, and that played a lot into this album, into writing it. So I think that's the probably the biggest thing. I saw a tweet and I can't remember who tweeted it, but it was like, it said something about, now that is a breakup album. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think
1: if I had, I did know that she was going through a divorce. I don't know if you know that her ex-husband was Adrian Pazdar who played yeah Nathan Petrelli on Heroes. So that was kind of, I didn't realize they were breaking up until I was researching for this segment. But I I think even if I listened to this without really knowing that she was going through that, I would have thought somebody was going through a breakup. <laughs> Because it is pretty, and I think that's cool is to not really hide that stuff in your lyrics. Maybe that's why I like Taylor Swift also is that she's very, you know, it's, it's universalized, but it's also like not held back, you know, you you totally get the emotion. There's a little bit of specificity in some of the comments in some of the lyrics, but it's still vague enough that if you're experiencing it or have ever experienced it or know someone who's experienced it, it still resonates, which I think is great. Yeah. specific and and vague. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that show that shows their strength as songwriters and interpreters when they're not singing their own songs. And the thing that's interesting to me too, we didn't really say their genre. They're considered a country band, but I don't know that I would have if I didn't know that. This is again an album that I think is very crossover, appealing. Mm-hmm. I'm not the biggest country fan. I like some country, but it's definitely not a genre that I listen to as much as other genres right and especially newer country I'm not as into but they started as a bluegrass band before Natalie Maines even joined the band and I think that that influence plus then Natalie Maines apparently is a little more into rock and blues that blends really nice and it sort of transcends all of those genres and to me this is almost like a pop folk album if that makes sense yeah it does their older
0: music is more on the country side of things, and even though this definitely has more rock influence, it's definitely got the bluegrass influence too. And I loved like the fiddles and I think the steel guitars on on something. I'm not great with like instruments, but <laughs> it's definitely got a bluegrassy feel to
1: to some of the songs, which is very cool. They do definitely use a lot like there's a pedal steel guitar steel guitar ukulele lots of fiddle but some of it's a little more subtle and then they also have like organ and cello and obviously a lot of rock instruments too so it's very it's very much a fusion album Mm -hmm. for sure so what song did you like the best so I listened to this a couple times I did really enjoy the whole album, but I also do think there's a couple tracks that are a little, they almost kind of blend together a little bit. So Mm -hmm. my favorite ones were the ones that did feel a little bit more dynamic and not angry, but a little more leaning toward being angry. So the title track, Gaslighter, is so catchy. That's almost to its detriment because I know I'm going to (laughs) be, it's already stuck in my head. (laughs) That's. I think that one is is maybe my favorite, but March March is really amazing, mm-hmm. and then Sleep at Night I also really liked too, as well as Juliana Calm Down. I think those were all my favorite ones. But I do want to mention the the video for March March. Yes. is so powerful. It is about the most powerful protest video I've seen since Childish Gambino's This Is America. It's compiled from a bunch of footage of protests from the 1900s to today. And it ends with a sequence that flashes a bunch of names of people who have been killed through race-based police brutality.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And I was crying by the end of it. And it was just really, really moving. And they've always been a little bit more political than the average country band and so i think that this is them continuing in that tradition of making a point about social justice and making a point about protesting and making a point that we're not done and it just really it it i'm choked up talking about it but it's really really beautiful and powerful and um and the song itself is very good too but i did also think that the video for sleep at night is equally impactful in a very feminist way the way that the women are shown Literally supporting each other physically is oh, a symbol of them very good. supporting each other emotionally. And again, I'm just getting <laughs> choked up. I, I, I don't know if they're like good friends in real life. The two girls are actually sisters, but I want to mm-hmm. think they're all best friends because it was just really. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I feel like by this point, it's been a long time. So they're probably really good friends. Yeah. But yeah, I, I was actually going to text you earlier in the week to make sure you watch that because I just felt like it was a video that you would like.
1: Oh my gosh. So yeah,
0: the the March March video is really powerful. I had chills when I watched it, and I had chills when you were talking about it. And I think if if any listeners out there have not seen it yet, I would go out there and just bring it up on YouTube because it's really good. I think a lot about how, especially in today's world, art can be activism, Mm -hmm. and I think that's really important. You know, maybe a song doesn't sound like much, but if it gets people to look up some of the names that they included in the video and to find out what happened and to to look at the ways that they can help. I think that's really important. Every little bit is important, you know? Yeah. And the, the sleep at night video, so you didn't really describe that. And there's it's actually not very complicated because it's all, If correct me if I'm wrong, but it's all one continuous shot. It's
1: one continuous shot for like four minutes or whatever, which is... Technically as a in filmmaking and, and whatnot and for performing, that's incredibly difficult. Yeah. And it's beautifully performed. It's just flawless.
0: It's really good. And basically they start out I don't know, they're outside a motel or something, it's nighttime and they just pretty continually walk toward the camera. And at one point Natalie Maines, the main singer, falls down, I think. And marty mcguire and emily robeson the two other members pick her up but the cam when she falls down the camera keeps moving so it's like it's a steady pace and then they they have to run to catch up to the camera it's just it's really visually interesting and and very very cool
1: yeah and it again it just really like there's a there's a music video it's much much older by oh it's a, a video by slater kinney where they show women in a field and they link arms and they pull each other up from falling down and it reminded me of that. Okay. It ju- it's not the same way and it's not done the same way at all but but it harkened back to that and I know Slater Kinney was trying to make a very overtly feminist point and I really felt like this was equally trying to make that same kind of point. I also Juliana calm down. I don't know if what did you think of that song?
0: I loved it. Okay, listen. <laughs> <laughs> I usually go to my parents on the weekends to, like, grocery shop for them and stuff, and walk the dog, and I listened to it on the way down, and when I came back to my house, I listened to the CD again, but I, <laughs> for like a solid half hour, <laughs> I just had Juliana come down on repeat. <laughs> I thought it was so good. I was gonna say I think it's my favorite on the whole album.
1: It's very good, and that that song it lists off a number of women's names and tells that woman to calm down for specific reasons, but it's all empowering. Like you don't need him or you don't need this thing in your life or it's going to be okay. And it's just, Oh, it's so simple, but it's so beautiful.
0: Yeah. And I, I don't know for certain, but I think a lot of the names are their kids' names. Oh, Oh yeah. The very next song is called young man. And it's talking to their sons about you know you just found out that your hero isn't really a hero and it's about giving them the space to grieve but also the strength to be like hey i'm here if you need me so i think those two songs in juxtaposition talking to the young people in their lives are really powerful
1: yes absolutely yeah and i think the title track which is kind of i think very clearly the main divorce song (laughs) Man, she's an angry little woman, I gotta tell you.
0: Which is great. She's so mad.
1: (laughs) It also, I think there is an element to it that is broader than just a single relationship breaking up, because gaslighting as a concept is from the... It's from a film, right? It's from a film. It's from...
0: The British play Gaslight from 1938. Which was originally performed as
1: Angel Street in the United States. Is that? Yeah. So the, the main movie that people are citing is the adaptation of that from 1940 called Gaslight. And the whole point of that film, I actually haven't seen the whole thing, but the husband is emotionally abusive to the wife and he is trying to get her to think that she's going crazy by lowering and raising the literal gas lighting in the house so that she thinks there's something wrong with it. But No one else can see it happen and uh, no one believes her. So he's trying to con her into making her think she's going crazy when in fact he's doing that so that he can like leave her and I think he has like a second secret family or something. So it's become this term that means, no, I'm not crazy. You are doing something weird and making me think I'm going crazy. And I don't want to, you know, we try to be a little bit Subtle with politics on here, but I think there's a larger cultural moment that that is speaking to, right? Where truth is, has become a negotiable concept, and I think that they're making a point there with that—that that, you know, no, it's not. Truth is still universal truth, but you're positioning it to to emphasize alternative facts, basically,
0: <laughs> right? And I, I think that speaks to your point of, of the songs being both specific and broad on that. It, it certainly applies to a broken up marriage, but it also applies to all these other things that are going on in the world. And kind of along with that point, as a whole, I think the album is very much a feminist album. Like, there are little things that the songs will talk about that are feminist and like, Juliana, calm down. Hey, like, don't worry, take a breath. You don't need him. But on a broader scale, you have songs like March, March, which are about the protests in general, but also the Black Lives Matter movement and the resistance movements and all of the, these cultural moments that are happening. And I think the songs intersect in a way that that allow it to be very broadly feminist and intersectional and, and things like that. So.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I dig it. I'm looking forward to listening to it some more. Are there other tracks that you want to make particular mention of?
0: One, well, one of the other ones that I really like is Sleep at Night. I like Texas Man a lot. And that's about like older women being attractive and desirable. I like For Her, which is kind of, it's kind of got a gospely feel mm-hmm. to me and it I think that's where the organ comes in mm-hmm. that you mentioned and that is about What I took to be about divorced parents getting along for their children, is that what you took from it?
1: Yeah, I think so. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know that that one in particular resonated with me as much. I did like Texas Man. I thought that was pretty good. I did think there was a point in the early middle that I was like, this is feeling a little too samey for Mm -hmm. me. But, you know, um, I think upon repeated listenings, I'll, I'll probably not feel quite that way.
0: Yeah, and that's that's totally fair. One of the things that I noticed in the songs that I really like is they've all got this driving percussion beat. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know, I just wanted to mention that. (laughs) Because for her starts out kind of slowly, but then like about halfway through, I think that beat comes in and I was like, Oh, yeah, I dig this. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: I like the I thought tights on my boat was kind of a weird song, but it's got that driving. (laughs) That's a very I don't know. That's sort of like that song is mentioned in Gaslighter. Like she makes a little oblique comment and then Tights on My Boat is the even more specific, weirder, you know, telling the story of what she hints at in Gaslighter. Yeah. But the beat of that is like that Tights on My Boat is like not even remotely a country song, in my opinion. That's almost like a (laughs) funk song or something. So, yeah, I think I just I liked the ones that seemed... Strange almost for this being from this band. And okay. Yeah. Cool.
0: I'm glad you liked it. I like it a lot. I'll, I'll give it some more listens. So, no. yeah, I'm very too. happy.
1: Yeah. This was a good choice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, next week, we're going to shift gears completely and we're going to be talking about role playing games and the power of storytelling. Our theme music is by Joseph McDade. You can follow me on Twitter at kw Taylor Writer. And me on Twitter at Carrie Gester. And you can find us together on Twitter at Paws Pop Podcast. If you'd rather email us, you can do that at PositivelyPopCulture at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy and safe and join us next time for another episode of Paws Pop.